Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work. As soon as he's back, we're going to resume the regular Song of Ice and Fire weekly podcast with Sansa 3 in A Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I'm going to be recording a variety of episodes, including picking up where I left off last time with The Lord of the Rings. Those episodes are going to come out weekly for everybody, but these episodes are going to be just for patrons. And in these episodes, I'm going to be going through the Star Wars movies. Starting, naturally, at the beginning, with The Phantom Menace. What? It's episode one. Of course I'm going to start here. This movie came out in the spring of 1999 to tepid reviews, massive ticket sales, and a fan reaction ranging from catatonic to suicidal. And since then, the conversation around The Phantom Menace has gone in two opposite directions. Stuff like the famous red-letter media videos frame this movie as a disaster for the ages. Shorthand for a disappointing movie experience. George Lucas is the weird, corny guy who long ago left this galaxy behind to live up his own ass instead. At the same time, this movie has been reclaimed by the kind of bizarre coalition you can imagine as one of the found families in Star Wars. You got people who like George Lucas's politics, people who appreciate the personal stamp of these self-funded blockbusters, or people who just fell in love with the formal elements of The Phantom Menace in particular. Not to mention Generation Z fans who grew up with this one alongside the rest. This is just Star Wars. And I love this movie as a kid, having just seen the special editions in theaters when they were released to kind of, in part, drum up publicity for the new one. I was nine when The Phantom Menace came out, same age as Anakin, and I was the ideal audience. I saw it over and over in the theaters, and then over and over at home on VHS, and I think those are still probably the best two ways to see it. Now, I'm not going to pretend that the critics of this movie are just wrong. The Phantom Menace has some major flaws. Chief among them, I think, are the cringy caricature stuff going on with Jar Jar and Watto, as well as the difficulty the younger performers are having with some of the dialogue. The older performers handle it well. Liam Neeson in this one, Ewan McGregor and Ian McDiarmid, who stick around for the whole of the prequel trilogy. They have this arch Victorian theater attitude going on that I think fits this dialogue. But Jake Lloyd and Natalie Portman are definitely having trouble with it, and so will Portman again and Hayden Christensen in the movies to come. But I think The Phantom Menace is also a fascinating movie, with such peculiar, grandiose ambitions that it's really impossible to imagine it being made under any other circumstances other than the guy writing and directing it is also the guy paying for all of it. And I think what prevents people from getting into it now more than anything is a tone problem. The Phantom Menace is a kid's movie about creeping fascism. It's a bright, colorful adventure story about the impermanence of all that you love and the inevitability of corruption, decay, and death. And I think that's just too dissonant for some people. Like our boy hero is winning the big race and saving the day at the end. But the point of the movie, in context, is that the villain wins without anyone realizing he's done it, or even realizing that he's the villain at all. The Phantom Menace is a complicated structure built out of the simplest objects, mostly light, sound, and speed. Lucas is geared into the most primal and childlike elements of cinematic appeal, even though he's writing a romantic tragedy about the rise of empires. And for a lot of people, that just does not work. For me, it's what makes this movie so special. The Phantom Menace is such a vibrant, overwhelming experience because it's setting up a surface layer where the main characters are operating, and then hinting at the deeper, darker layer that will gradually come into view throughout Attack of the Clones before emerging whole in Revenge of the Sith. 
Before I get into The Phantom Menace, I want to talk just a little bit about resources I think are interesting in terms of reading up on Star Wars. There's the famous example of the Ring Theory Essays by Mike Klimo at StarWarsRingTheory.com. These, this is often the foundation for when people uh, defend the prequels. They talk about the interesting stuff going on with story structure, and these essays take a look at the many structural parallels between the two George Lucas trilogies, arguing that taken together, they form a sort of looping structure that makes the sum more interesting even than the parts. Even more so, in terms of more scholarly writing on Star Wars, I always come back to the work of Anne Lancashire at the University of Toronto. She wrote a great essay called Once More with Feeling on Return of the Jedi when it came out back in the 80s. Uh, very insightful in terms of how the elements of that movie were combining and remixing the previous two movies in order to point towards this larger ethical structure of the trilogy as a whole. And then when The Phantom Menace came out, she wrote about it in another great essay called Repetition, Variation, Integration, in which she assessed the structure of Star Wars so well that she was able to basically predict not only the structure, but the themes of the following two movies. And then when they came out, she also wrote very well about Attack of the Clones, which I will get to when I get to that movie. Her overall perspective on Star Wars is that it, quote, builds backwards as well as forwards to create six mutually dependent parts interrelated in an intricately designed narrative, mythological, and metaphoric whole. She writes that The Phantom Menace has a similar structure to A New Hope, the original Star Wars movie, but with, quote, the dark potential with its attendant thematic complications already present in The Phantom Menace, where they aren't in New Hope, and that causes the tonal mix of Phantom Menace that I mentioned earlier. She also cautions that this is not just a repeat of old elements. That's what a lot of people say about the prequels, that the many callbacks are basically just fan service. She writes that the broad pattern of human life from youth to maturity to death remains constant, but the individual circumstances within that pattern inevitably differ, creating different possibilities and problems. Arguing that Phantom Menace relative to New Hope emphasizes the fallibility, not the strengths, of humankind in the characters now presented and the difficulties of the human situation. And this is how she sums up the relationship between the two trilogies. Episodes 4 through 6 have already presented to audiences the return slash redemption of the hero through his developed potential to become a Jedi. Knowledgeable, controlled, compassionate, and powerful through self-sacrifice. Episodes 1 through 3, repeating and varying 4 through 6, will apparently now show a contrasting mythic initiation. The failure, the fall, through the hero's developed potential to become a Sith. Aggressive, self-centered, and powerful through anger, hatred, and the human fear of death. All of that feeds into what George Lucas himself has said about the story structure of Star Wars. There's that quote that a lot of people like to return to from Vanity Fair in 2005, where he said, The interesting thing about Star Wars, and I didn't ever really push this very far because it's not really that important, but there's a lot going on there that most people haven't come to grips with yet. When they do, they will find it's a much more intricately made clock than most people would imagine. And that intricacy, baked into every aspect, is really what I want to talk about with Star Wars. Mostly, but not entirely, in terms of the story structure. Everyone hates how the Phantom Menace starts. With taxes. In space. Space taxes. What could be more boring than that? As usual with Star Wars, or at least George Lucas's vision of it, there are a bunch of different reference points here. Ones which intersect in interesting ways and set up lines of inquiry to be followed throughout the saga. There's the political aspect, the way the Phantom Menace opens evokes tax revolts ranging from the American Revolution era to modern cartelization and monopolization, the latter becoming especially important for Attack of the Clones. Then there's the spiritual aspect. Caesar Augustus decreeing that all the world should be taxed is part of the story of the Christian Savior figure, which ties right into Anakin's introduction in this movie as the prophesied Savior born of divine intervention. And then there's the classic film references that Lucas loves so much and always includes in Star Wars. We could be at the start of Seven Samurai here, which Liam Neeson says was his primary inspiration for the character of Qui-Gon Jinn. But in terms of the story structure of Star Wars, the main reason Phantom Menace starts with space taxes instead of something more explosive is to establish that this is a time of relative peace. 
Luke's trilogy builds from war to peace, mirroring his personal story of redemption. Anakin's trilogy builds from peace to war, mirroring his personal story of corruption. Luke's trilogy famously begins with an image of war distilled down to its most basic moving parts, that famous opening shot of the first Star Wars movie. A small ship desperately fleeing a much bigger ship, both firing everything they've got at each other. The Phantom Menace starts with the power dynamics of peacetime. Ambassadors and diplomats, bluffs and retreats, everyone performing for each other, moving through proxies and servants and doubles. It's not a shooting war, not yet. It's about taxes. It's about intimidation and obfuscation, because war is politics by other means, and vice versa. The original Star Wars dispenses with the remains of the Republic off-screen. The Empire mercy kills the Senate without breaking a sweat. The Phantom Menace begins in a world in which Republic rule has gone unquestioned for so long, it's grown stagnant, an insular bubble like the Jedi Council, as we'll see. So everything is very formal and serene. The captain of the Republic ship speaks with all due respect to the Viceroy of the Trade Federation. The Viceroy reassures the captain that their blockade is perfectly legal and the ship can land. Everything is by the book. And the form, the style, matches the content. The compositions are static, almost calm. The music has an airy quality, very atmospheric, and I get for a lot of people, this is a boring way to start. I like this sort of stately, rarefied approach on its own terms. Lucas intended, according to the book, The Making of Star Wars, Episode One: The Phantom Menace, for this movie to be a sort of period piece, and that's what it feels like to me, a period piece for a past that never existed, luxuriating in every detail to capture an era just as it passes away. But this approach is also appropriate for the story. The Phantom Menace has to begin with everything in its right place so that everything can then begin to fall apart. The trade embargo sparking off a diplomatic and military snafu makes me think of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And The Phantom Menace is very much a Cold War movie. Or maybe a post-Cold War movie, warning its audience of subterranean powers at work. It fits the time it came out in. The end of history, 1990s, when liberal democratic capitalism reassured itself it had everything under control for the foreseeable future. Like the opening shot of the original Star Wars with the tiny rebel ship and the huge Empire ship, the opening shot of the Phantom Menace basically tells the whole story. The Republic diplomatic ship races toward Naboo, a planet half in sun, half in shadow. Star Wars is, of course, obsessed with duality, typically represented as light and dark. In this case, Naboo is split in two to represent its two most famous and powerful inhabitants, Padme and Palpatine, the light and the darkness. Padme embodies the ideals of liberal democracy for George Lucas, which Attack of the Clones makes very, very clear. Palpatine, of course, embodies tyranny, unlimited power as he cackles in Revenge of the Sith. Padme makes peace with the Gungans and wants to make peace with the Separatists. Palpatine is always driving wedges between people, creating multiple secret armies while she introduces legislation to prevent an arms race. But they literally come from the same place. They're parts of a whole, like yin and yang. They both disguise themselves in this movie, Padme as a handmaiden, Palpatine as a loyal senator. Anakin's downfall only happens because they're two sides of the same coin. His love for Padme is precisely what makes him vulnerable to Palpatine. In this opening shot, Naboo appears behind the Trade Federation blockade, their ships hanging menacingly, like wasps ready to strike. The planet is under threat, and most of the Phantom Menace's plot, on the surface, is about trying to liberate Naboo. But Naboo is also the cause of the blockade. It's only happening here because this is Palpatine's homeworld, and he can use the visible threat to catapult himself to the top of the Republic, which is where he stands by the end of the movie. So if you think that tax revolt in space is a boring way to begin, think of it this way. The Phantom Menace opens with the antagonist sacrificing his own planet for political power, a ruthless move that defines Palpatine's character. 
Remember how devastated Princess Leia was by the threat to Alderaan? Palpatine is the exact opposite here. Or compare him to Anakin, who was defined by his attachment to home and family, and his desperation to preserve those things, at any cost to himself and others. In the opening move of the story, Palpatine severs all such connections, committing himself utterly to being a creature of power rather than humanity. To me, that's a really dramatic way to start, but it is buried in the subtext. It only becomes clear when you come back to it with a full awareness of the story structure. I say opening move because the Phantom Menace's story structure does feel like a game playing itself out. It's less about any one character arc than a series of characters, settings, and scenarios caught within the context of moves and counter moves. One of the Trade Federation officials even refers to Darth Sidious's master plan as this game of yours. And the style reflects that. The first time we see the Jedi, Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi, it's from behind, one on either extreme side of the frame. Between them, and in front of them, are the pilots of the ship. It's visually reminiscent of a game of chess, with the pilots as the pawns of the Jedi. Then again, the Jedi themselves are the pawns of the Republic. As Qui-Gon says later in the movie, there's always a bigger fish. Palpatine's opening move was to move forward his pawns, the Trade Federation. Chancellor Valorum's opening move is to send in his pawns, the Jedi. Supposedly, they're serving as ambassadors, keepers of the peace, as Mace Windu says in Attack of the Clones. Are they, though? Also in Attack of the Clones, Anakin uses a very interesting phrase to describe his Jedi responsibilities to Padme. Aggressive negotiations. And what's that, she asks? Negotiations with a lightsaber, he admits. Padme uses the same phrase, aggressive negotiations, when diplomacy gives way to war between the Republic and the Separatists. The border between peace and war is easily blurred. I think it's fair to say that the Jedi were not sent to negotiate a peaceful settlement on anything resembling a level playing field. No, they're here to scare the shit out of the Trade Federation in order to force them to the table. Qui-Gon says the negotiations will be short because the Federation leaders are cowards, implying he's here to intimidate them. And you can also see this dynamic at work in how Amidala describes the situation, that the Republic ambassadors are here to, quote, command the Federation to reach a settlement. The Jedi aren't being used for their wisdom, their serenity, their broad perspective, all the things you might think they were known for, given Obi-Wan and Yoda as we met them in the original trilogy. The Jedi are being used as weapons, blunt objects to clear the opponent's pieces off the board. They are force multipliers, so to speak. And their reputation is their primary tool here, more than lightsabers, more than the force itself. Everyone knows the Jedi can fuck your shit up royally, so play nice with them and they won't have to. The political context changes the meaning of the Jedi. They exist within the structure of the Republic, and are used within it like cogs in a machine. Kevin Wetmore argues in his book, The Empire Triumphant, Race, Religion, and Rebellion in the Star Wars Films, that this is a deconstruction of Obi-Wan's statement in the original trilogy about the Jedi being guardians of peace and justice. Quote, the purpose of the Jedi in the prequel trilogy is to preserve the status quo. Their sole purpose seems to be to keep the powerful, including themselves, in power and prevent any significant resistance to the domination of the Republic. After all, Obi-Wan lied to Luke about Darth Vader's identity to hide the ugly truth. Maybe he lied about the nature of the Jedi as well. Carl Silvio argues in his essay, The Star Wars Trilogies and Global Capitalism, that, quote, this representation actually provokes within us an awareness of the inaccessibility of this past, and in so doing, highlights the very absence of our object of desire. This was never utopia. There never was justice here. The plot of The Phantom Menace only plays out the way it does because this opening move of Chancellor Valorum's doesn't work as intended. Instead of reducing tensions, it escalates them, precisely because sending in the Jedi is an implicit threat of violence. It's why he did it without consulting the Senate. 
So the Jedi don't seem like peaceful monks so much as covert ops, carrying out secret missions to reshape the politics in local systems. They're Cold War operatives, as well as samurai in space. I get why Chancellor Valorum does what he does. The Senate is failing to function, as the opening crawl hints and the movie will go on to explicitly confirm. But this is all spinning out of his control now. And that steady escalation, half concealed from sight, defines the story structure of the prequel trilogy. It's all there in the opening conversation between Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon when they get to the Trade Federation ship. If you think of the story structure as a literal structure, this is an architecturally perfect entranceway. It's the thesis statement that binds together everything to come. Here's what the story is about. Valor Morghulis. All men must die. We're all screwed. But because we are so permanently, inherently screwed, we should try to live in the moment. Obi-Wan has, everyone say it with me, a bad feeling about this. He senses the structure unfolding around them, that they have stepped into a story without realizing it, and the path is moving under their feet. Mere pawns in a supervillain's master plan. He senses the past and future of the story. The original trilogy, our pre-existing knowledge of how all this ends, is in the future for him. But he senses it coming, and there's nothing he can do about it. We know that better than anyone. In his essay, Apocalyptic Determinism and Star Wars, John Lydon notes that there's an apocalyptic pessimism to this story structure because the audience knows how this ends and that the doom cannot be avoided. Qui-Gon knows it too. Think about what he doesn't say to Obi-Wan. He doesn't reassure his Padawan that nothing bad could happen, the Jedi have it all under control. That's how the Council thinks, and that's the kind of thing that keeps Qui-Gon off the Council. Instead, Qui-Gon tells Obi-Wan that regardless of what's coming, his focus belongs on the here and now. And it's a message to the audience as well. Inhabit the present moment, this movie, this chunk of the circle of story going round and round. This meditative approach defines Qui-Gon's character, most memorably expressed in his final moments, when he takes a breath from his duel with Darth Maul to sit, close his eyes, and be present in the moment. It's what he calls the living force, an idea Yoda articulates to Luke in The Empire Strikes Back. He's always been looking to the future, ignoring where he was and what he was doing. You can't escape your doom. It's a tragic notion of fate passed down from the Greeks and Shakespeare, both clear influences on the prequels. It's vital that Qui-Gon has internalized this idea, because it's implied his perspective on the living force is what allows him to do what no one else can. What Anakin destroys himself and so much more trying to do. Transcend death. Qui-Gon is the first force ghost. He trains Yoda and Obi-Wan how to do it. He's the reason they're so much more enlightened in the original trilogy than they are here. The name Qui-Gon is a crude Americanization of the Chinese word Qigong, a form of mental and physical exercise that uses meditation and breathing control, equal parts martial art training and spiritual cleansing. Literally speaking, Qigong breaks down to Qi, or life energy, and Gong, working or cultivating a skill. And that's Qui-Gon in a nutshell, someone who cultivates life energy, focusing on finding balance. In a sense, the final image of Lucas's six-part saga, the Force Ghosts smiling at the camera, has been retconned as Qui-Gon's victory, despite him not being present. His wisdom and compassion outlasts not only Palpatine, but death itself, and is key to redeeming not only Yoda and Obi-Wan, but Anakin as well. Still, in the here and now, where Qui-Gon tells us to focus, he's an enforcer of the Republic's will, cloaked in the immense power of fear. We see that fear at work with the Nemordian leaders of the Trade Federation. Qui-Gon is right that they're cowards, but wrong that this prevents them from being dangerous. They work through surrogates, typically droids, as they do here. When they fear going into the room with the Jedi, they just say, send in the droid. It's an expendable life form, which is also how the Nemordians feel about their droid armies in general, and how the Republic looks at their clone warriors in the movies to come. 
This is how the Nemordians deal with their fear. Send in their pawn, and then report to the shadowy king who moves them in turn, Darth Sidious. The prequel trilogy is as much his story as Anakin's. He's motivated by his desire to wipe out the Jedi, along with the Republic, and rule as a Sith tyrant in their place. So naturally, the first time we see him, he's forced to confront how omnipotent his opponents seem right now, even to his own pawns. He sees the Federation officials cowering in fear at the concept of confronting the Jedi, and he reacts harshly. Viceroy, don't let this stinking slime in my sight again. This is not only because Palpatine is just an asshole, but also because he hates how powerful the Jedi seem in the eye of the beholder. How they don't even have to do anything to create this fear. All they have to do is show up. It's more than he can do right now. Forced to wear a disguise and move through proxies. He will later relish in the opportunity to destroy the reputation of the Jedi, along with their bodies. Palpatine perceives the Jedi's presence as an escalation, another in the alarming chain of events identified in the opening crawl. So he escalates in turn, ordering the Trade Federation to move from a trade embargo of Naboo to an outright invasion of the planet. For all that the Nemordians are motivated by greed, as the opening crawl tells us, fear is also driving them at every turn. They feared the Jedi, and so came crawling to Sidious. And now the Viceroy, Newt Gunray, fears using his own army, asking Sidious if that's even legal. Like he said at the start, the blockade isn't technically illegal by the laws of the Republic. They haven't crossed the Rubicon yet, but with an invasion, they would be. Sidious' response sums up his overall strategy. I will make it legal. It's the same ambiguity of legitimacy that we see with the Jedi engaging in aggressive negotiations. Same applies to the treaty that the bad guys keep trying to get Padme to sign in this movie. What is illegal? What constitutes war? Who's even in charge? It's all up in the air. But even though Sidious makes clinical use of the levers of power and abandons his own planet to an industrialized war machine, he's still a human being, and is prey to the same emotional flares as anyone else, if not more so. He orders the Jedi killed on the spot, because the Chancellor should never have brought them into this. Palpatine is repulsed by the Jedi. You can tell he'd hoped to not have to deal with them yet. So he wants to indulge his bloodlust, the passions of the Sith, and it ultimately backfires, setting in motion the long chain of events that lead to Palpatine's rise, but also ultimately his downfall. Palpatine makes the same mistake at the end of the saga in Return of the Jedi, lording over Luke, enjoying the pain he's causing with his force lightning, exposing himself to Vader's vengeful wrath. Palpatine is a prisoner of hate, as much as Anakin is a prisoner of love. In the ultimate analysis, all of Palpatine's violence rebounds on him. And so violence arrives in the placid, peaceful world of the Phantom Menace, with the destruction of the Republic ship. A beautiful practical explosion, despite this movie's reputation as a CGI nightmare. The explosion has a vibrant color pattern, red and pink, like some of the digital explosions on Geonosis and Attack of the Clones. It's the destruction of peace and harmony, leaving behind the war-torn, used future of the original trilogy. As well as setting the stylistic pattern for the violence of the prequels, this moment also sets the thematic pattern. The smallest pieces die first. The pawns of the pawns. The pilots who did nothing wrong and cannot control their fate. And this motif becomes more pointed in the movies to come. Padme's body double dies for her in the opening of Attack of the Clones, and Anakin is forced to let clone troopers die during the opening battle of Revenge of the Sith. And in both those cases, the same line is said to them to justify it. They did your duty, so you could do yours. Padme and Anakin are forced to carry on with the mission, but the raw feelings unleashed stand in for the larger-scale disasters of those movies. Here in Phantom Menace, the Jedi don't even hesitate when they hear their ship's been blown up. The mission is clear, and they're professionals. They're knights as much as diplomats and spies. 
And the first action scene of The Phantom Menace is beautifully executed, starting with the perfectly composed shot of the green and blue lightsabers emerging from the smoke. It's a sci-fi tribute to samurai pictures, and an expression of the Jedi's position in the prequels, trying to light their way through Palpatine's evolving smokescreen. And the action is so clean and well choreographed. There are a lot of moving parts, but you can track it all thanks to every level of craftsmanship working together. The compositions draw your eye to the central plane of action. The movements are visually dazzling but precise. The methodical editing grounds the action in space, and the thrilling music keeps the audience tempo high. I particularly love the paired POV shots of Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon's lightsabers taking down a droid each. Perfect mirror images for what is now feeling like a World War II team-building man-on-a-mission movie combined with an old-timey knightly swashbuckler. Even more than that, I love Qui-Gon stubbornly working his lightsaber through multiple layers of blast doors, the Nemordians unable to believe what their eyes are telling them as he dedicates himself to badassery with quiet focus. That's the moment I fell in love with Phantom Menace as a kid, and it still gets me today. But underneath all of that is the story structure. And in terms of the story structure, this is a massive diversion that the Jedi are falling for. Their goal here is not to defeat the Trade Federation forces in combat. The goal ought to be to find out what the hell is actually happening here, and why. As Qui-Gon says when they stumble onto the invasion army, that's an unusual move for the Trade Federation. War can be profitable, as we see in The Last Jedi, but that doesn't really seem to be what's going on here. Why are they escalating like this? The Jedi don't know. As Obi-Wan said, the truth is elusive. And that fits the increasingly political focus of the prequel trilogy, all about mysterious power cartels manipulating money and bodies for their own ends. Attack of the Clones will dive deeper into the signs and symbols of what you might call late capitalism. Silvio, who I quoted earlier in his essay about Star Wars and global capitalism, argues that the prequels are at least an attempt to tap into the feeling that, quote, as the networks of capital that structure our lives become more decentralized and diffuse, they become less visible, less able to be cognitively grasped, and because of this, more powerful. For all their swashbuckling heroism, the Jedi haven't resolved the problem, and so we arrive at a key thematic touchstone of Lucas's Star Wars. Violence is usually not the answer. I say usually because our heroes, you know, blow up Jabba the Hutt's skiff and we're all supposed to cheer, but there's still an unmistakable pattern here. In A New Hope, Obi-Wan wins by sacrificing himself, and the victory over the Death Star is followed up by a medal ceremony which visually echoes Lenny Riefenstahl, implying that this might be a, a bloodlust-driven propaganda victory for the Rebellion that doesn't actually achieve their main goals. And the Rebellion's courage in Empire Strikes Back is geared toward defense and retreat. Luke's recklessness ultimately serves the dark side and leads to his defeat at the end of the movie. In Return of the Jedi, Luke has to defeat a monster called the Rancor, a very clear allegory there for the, the anger and fury and wrath within, and he defeats Palpatine by refusing to kill his father and so become him. This caution against aggression and war is even more pronounced in the prequels, where the context of the story structure turns every potentially rousing action scene into a meditation on the folly and blindness of violence. The most prominent example is, of course, the Clone War, in which Palpatine manipulates factions he controls into fighting each other, to his own ultimate advantage. But it's also present on a smaller scale. For all that Obi-Wan and especially Qui-Gon are badasses in this scene, they're ultimately forced into a stalemate by the destroyer droids, who are designed to negate the Jedi lightsaber skills with their automatic shields. The scale of industrialized production outstrips the ability of human beings to keep pace, even the Jedi. That's exactly why, when faced with the functionally limitless droid armies of the corporate cabal fueling the separatist movement, the Republic turns to the clone army, soldiers of flesh and blood, but mass-produced for war in a way the specialized, rarefied Jedi never could be. 
So the Jedi are forced to retreat, find another path on the board. As Obi-Wan says, Qui-Gon was right about one thing. The negotiations were short. It's a cynical joke revealing the truth about the Jedi's mission. They were here to force compliance through the threat of violence, so they cannot honestly say they were unprepared for violence to break out. They're being used by the Republic, like the Trade Federation is using their droid armies. Pawns in aggressive negotiations. And that is going to wrap us up for this initial episode on Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. As you can tell, these are going to be pretty loosely structured episodes in terms of how much of the movie I'm going to cover in any one given episode. Sometimes they'll be longer or shorter, depending on how much of the movie I'm covering. I plan to bring uh, guests on as we go through the series, so it's not just me. Same thing for my Lord of the Rings episodes. So thank you for listening, and thank you so much for your support on Patreon. Hope you like this initial Star Wars episode. And next time, I'll pick right back up with where we left off in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace.